from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth. This is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, Johnny Mercer MP. I knew that we were transforming lives across Plymouth. The trouble is the pandemic has kind of reset all that. So, you know, we need to think about where we go again. And I have said that, you know, I want to rebuild Derriford Hospital and then probably call it a day. And Howard Davies from Sulcombe Gin. What I don't think I do enough is ever sort of step back enough and actually think, well, actually, look at where we are now. And actually, well, that was really good. And sort of just enjoy it for a moment and look back at all the really good stuff. It's quite easy sometimes just to focus on all the things that you're trying to do, all the little challenges that you have. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with the latest in our series of In Conversation with podcasts. And today I'm joined by Johnny Mercer, MP. Hi, Johnny. Hello, how are you? Yeah, all good, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. So my listeners will probably want to know, I've got to get to the most serious topical question to start with. I, I will. Ah, uh, this is real hard-hitting sort of journalistic stuff here, but is it true you really were in a shower scene advert for a famous <laughs> soap brand? Do you know what? Sadly, it is. But I have no regrets. I have no regrets. <laughs> Firstly, I mean, I had absolutely no money at all. So I think people forget when I started all this, I left the Citadel and I literally had nothing. And so when someone offered me some money to stand in the shower for four hours getting lathered up by some (laughs) male theatre hands uh, and would pay me for something that I would actually pay for. (laughs) I obviously took them up. So look, absolutely not ashamed of it at all. And if anyone's listening who wants a fat, middle-aged man in their shower gel adverts, I'm free. (laughs) You're still available. Well, as am I. We're here in Fresh Air Studios and Paul Philpot very kindly facilitating these interviews for us. And I've been putting on my best BBC voice in the hope that BBC sort of announcing voiceover work will come, but it hasn't worked so far. Is it not? Well, don't worry. Like I said, I mean, Fitzy's got a keel over at some point, right? I mean, <laughs> people have had some money on that for a while. So let's keep going and I'm sure you'll be in top spot. <laughs> Thank you. You touched on when you left the military there. And when you did, I mean, I don't know how much of a gap there was between you leaving the military and your campaign to be an MP, but you ran an almost military campaign to be an MP. I can remember thinking, I saw your face everywhere. I mean, who's this Johnny Mercer guy? I mean, it was incredible. Did you approach it in that way? Well, I must say, if the military ran like that, I'm not sure we'd really sort of win anything. I mean, it was very chaotic. I literally, but I just had no idea what I was doing. I'm afraid I was one of those who had no interest in politics. I'd never voted before. And it was just very, very chaotic. And obviously, you have to get involved with one of the major two parties if you're going to get elected. And the current incumbent was in the Labour Party. So I had to join the Conservatives. And, you know, there's a little bit more to it than that. But essentially like there wasn't exactly a queue around the block to stand for North Plymouth for the Conservative Party because no one had ever won it from my party before and the previous incumbent had been there quite a while and it was what's called a safe seat so you know it wasn't like I beat some mighty competition to get the role I think it's frankly that nobody else wanted it but when I was appointed yeah I mean I basically mapped the whole of Plymouth on Google Maps and marked up every single home and tried to bang on every door And it was amazing. I loved it. It was a fantastic route out of the military, I must say. And if you hadn't been elected, would you have stayed in politics? Would you have gone on to other things? What do you think you'd be doing now? It's a really good question because I didn't actually have a kind of plan B, really. I was writing a book at the time and I probably would have put a bit more time and effort into that. 
But honestly, I didn't really have a plan. And I didn't either expect to win. I mean, you know, it sounds stupid because obviously when you're standing for election, it's binary. You're either going to win or you're going to lose. So there is a mm. chance you might win. But when the bookies give you sort of less than 1% and everyone laughs at you for about seven months before the election, even the most robust and confident individual is going to think, I'm probably not going to win. But I did. And, you know, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ever since, you know. I don't know what I'd be doing if I wasn't doing this. Part of me dreads to think, really. And politics is a weird world. How do you manage that? Because I look at it from the outside and I think politicians are really unkind to each other. Yeah. What, what's the worst thing about being an MP? Oh, I mean, where do you start? I mean, look, the first thing I would say is it's an enormous privilege to represent loads of people from Plymouth because I love Plymouth. I've been here 20 years. You know, I've grown up here. I went from a boy to a man here. And I love being their voice in Westminster. But that's where the fun stops. Yeah, I find it extraordinary the way people speak to each other. And one thing that worries me, actually, like longevity in politics, is that I've fallen into that trap a couple of times myself. And I just think, you know, these people are so rude to me. Why am I not sort of rude back? And it's that that will, I think, chase me out of politics because I don't want to become sort of one of them. You know, I became a politician because I didn't like MPs. So the moments I become like that, I know, you know, people keep saying to me, oh, you need to polish up your performance and all this stuff. But for me, it's not an act. And I'm very happy with the way I am, conscious of all the mistakes I make. And the moment that I become like everyone else, then I'm afraid I will be going. Well, that's kind of good to hear. It's refreshing. And from the outside, I think politics, maybe it has always been so, but politics seems very confrontational, that it's very left or right, that you have to completely agree with everything one party says or completely disagree with another. How do we get past that and work more collaboratively? Because when we do things in collaboration, we surely get more done. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's something that I've found really frustrating over the years. And I'll be honest, like there are politicians who are of the opposite colour to me, who I do loads of really good work with. So I've been on committees in my time in the House. And we all know that unless you kind of work together, you're never really going to change anything. If you can have an idea like enshrining the Armed Forces Covenant into law, which is something I'm doing at the moment, and you can get cross-party support, you know full well you have a much better chance of getting there. But what I've come to realise over the years is that survival of the politician is a visceral battle for them. So whereas I was quite happy to lose at every election I've been into, I've obviously I want to win and I've tried hard. But if people don't vote for me, that's absolutely fine. You know, and you can't argue with the electorate. For most politicians, I think it's visceral and they have to survive. So every single announcement you'll see and both sides do it, you know, there'll be an opposing view, even if it's a really good announcement, you know, that you can find almost no argument with. And you're right. Does it hold us back? Yes. Those who advocate it, I think, would say that it produces challenge and it produces the right results in the end. Do you see what I mean? But I'm not really in that camp. I would like to see far more working together. But then again, I can see why it doesn't happen because I've tried that with people. And when they kind of then sort of go back into their politician self and it's all about survival, you end up really getting shafted and it's quite a painful process. You know, I've long said I don't really have any friends in politics and, you know, that's the reality of it. Well, I completely understand. I mean, it is a strange world and a murky pool to operate in, isn't it? And do you understand why people are sometimes disconnected from politics, where it looks like we lurch from one scandal to the next for, for yeah. either party? Do you know what I mean? There always seems yeah, to be yeah, yeah, 100%. Some... 
And the problem is, the problem is, right, that for as long as it continues like this, so I had an instant recently where I sent something unpleasant in the post, right? For as long as you have people in it who are A, either prepared to engage in that constant mudslinging that frankly, you know, bores the pants off everybody, or is just so resilient that things like getting sent things in the post is not going to bother them. I don't think that makes a particularly good MP because you then become so kind of, inoculated if you like to people's opinions and what they think of you that i think it can start to become quite dangerous and then you know your whole primary job which is representing the people who vote for you i think you sort of lose the ability to do that because you inevitably and i think understandably you've put on this kind of armor do you see what i mean so i think the more it continues the worse people are going to get in terms of their quality of politicians and frankly you know we do have a very poor quality of politician in this country and we have done for some time and i think that's where a lot of our challenges come from. Well, I saw what you were sent in the post, and I have to say that was disgusting and really unacceptable on every side. And what I was heartened with was that I did notice, I think it was on Twitter, there were a lot of politicians of all sides saying, you know, offering you their support and saying how disgraceful. Oh, yeah, but they would do. They have to, don't they? (laughs) Oh, you cynic. (laughs) Of course they do. Otherwise, they get picked up for it. What really matters to me is, you know, I haven't bought a pint in Plymouth for about a year now because whenever I go out in the bar, there's someone there who thinks what we're doing is good and will buy me a drink or whatever. And I got, you know, people sent me flowers and, or not me, my wife. And the vast majority are just lovely and it's a privilege to represent them. But, you know, the sad truth is that these effects do have an impact. Not so much on me, I think, because I've been through this now. But, you know, when you see your wife going through it, I think it's another level, really. And you've got to ask, you know, how long are we going to stick this for? I get that. In the nice possible way, you've put yourself up there, haven't you? But your wife didn't put herself up there. Your kids No, didn't, she didn't. No. And, and that is something that's really... There's a bad enough time putting up with me. <laughs> well, you know, I couldn't do the world of politics for a couple of reasons. One, I couldn't stand that intrusion on, you know, people I love. But... Also, the towing the party line thing. How do you sort of reconcile that when you feel, I've got to support my party, but actually I don't really agree? How does that work for you? It's really tough, you know, it's really tough. And most people, I think, understand it. So, for example, like recently is a really good example with the school meals thing, right? I understand the theory of the school meals thing and paying for it directly or indirectly from the Treasury, right? But the reality is it was, of course, very poor politics. And I knew that if I was a free agent, what I would have done in that vote, because I would have saved myself a lot of pain locally. But what you have to look at when you're part of government is you have to look at, right, if I'm going to go against this, I'm going to lose my position. I'm going to lose the influence and the voice I have. And all that stuff I've done over the last year, whether it's setting up the UK's first office of Veterans Affairs, bringing in legislation and laws and things like that for the stuff that I really got into politics for. Do I chuck all that on the fire heap for a vote that doesn't really matter or mean anything because these kids' meals are going to get paid for anyway? And that's the difficult challenge. And it is really, really tough because I know how it looks. I know how it looks. And, you know, you have to basically internally kind of, you're trying to operate the whole ship rather than just as an individual member. Do you see what I mean? I do completely. Um, And so you run, you know, when things like that happen, you run up to the bridge and speak to the captain and tell him, you know, a piece of your mind. But ultimately, are you going to jump off the ship and therefore not deliver all the stuff people voted for you to do? Probably not. So, yes, of course, it's challenging. And, you know, one would hope to not be put in these positions by parties, either left or right. 
Well, you've almost convinced me. So maybe Stuart Elford for prime minister one day. I, think oh, I, couldn't, I couldn't disagree with that. <laughs> no, I couldn't disagree with that. I mean, someone's going to have to take over from me, Stuart. So, uh... Still to come. Howard Davies from Sulcum Gin. Basically, we want to keep growing it and become an internationally recognised brand, Sulcum Gin, and some of the other products like Rum and New London Lights in the non-alcoholic sector that we have as well. All of these to be international brands. That's certainly our aspiration. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. Well, are you in politics for life, do you think? When you've no. achieved what you wanted to achieve, do you think you'll say enough's enough? I mean, you've done a... F- yeah. Nobody would argue. You've done a fantastic job over looking after the veterans, and that is, you know, brilliant and well-deserved. Was that your sole reason for doing it? Have you got other No, no. I mean, drive look, they for three very clear reasons. Represent young people, because I was sick of old and wrinkly politicians telling me what they thought was good for me. I wanted to represent Plymouth because I was sick of being such a long way from London and having such poor public services and levels of investment. And I wanted to speak for my generation who'd fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and frankly didn't get looked after by the country. You know, those three things are the reasons I went into politics. Okay, I'm beginning to tick the box on the veterans piece. I think, you know, on the Plymouth piece, we really were beginning to get somewhere quite exciting, actually. You yeah. know, you know, before the pandemic, there's more money coming to Plymouth than ever before. We've got a number of strategic building projects, the station, the trains, the jobs. I mean, the single biggest factor that improves life chances in some of my poorest communities in Ham and places like that is having a job and unemployment had never been lower. So look, it's not as sexy. It doesn't get on the news, right? But I knew that we were transforming lives across Plymouth. The trouble is the pandemic has kind of reset all that. So, you know, we need to think about where we go again. And I have said that, you know, I want to rebuild Derriford Hospital and then probably call it a day. So I think I've got eight or nine years if the good people of Plymouth continue to vote for me. And then, yes, I will go and do something else. But I want a lasting legacy. And that's going to be a new hospital at Derriford. Well, you've stolen my thunder and one of my questions was going to be what was your legacy. But you touched on the distance from London thing, which is a huge frustration to businesses in the southwest that we feel overlooked. Where do you stand on the levelling up agenda? Do you think really we are going to get this investment in the southwest or is it going to go to these borrowed votes in the north? I think we've got a real challenge. I'm not going to lie, because when I came down here, I wanted to act as quite an aggressive little cohort against the government to make sure we got what we deserved, right? So I, for example, said I wasn't going to vote for HS2 or HS2 progression until we had certain commitments on the railway. When it came to withholding my vote for that, I was the only one that did. And we're now up against a cohort in the North who quite clearly, you know, a number of things came together at that last election, which would suggest that they are there for one term only. So they have a slightly kind of bloody-minded approach to it. And they are going to make all the noise. And it's a real challenge for us down here to be slightly more aggressive, slightly more dynamic and make sure that these promises, which have been promised over many years by successive governments, actually come true. You know, I do think we are making incremental progress on the big things, you know, the rail line and so on. What we haven't got, I accept, is that strategic kind of shift that makes people feel like we've had our fair share. I think we've got some way to go on that. Yeah. And I think as a region, though, we've also been guilty ourselves of sort of banging that we want our fair share drum without really saying what our fair share is yeah, and what, exactly. and what government Articulate. gets out of it. It's a big problem, Stuart. You know, the government 
views us down this is why i sort of the only times i ever really get upset is when people just consistently moan at the government without providing a kind of answer for me to go into bat for them you know and it's a big part of plymouth city and plymouth city council you know is i really work hard to try and encourage them about how we actually get deals to bring investment into plymouth because it's not about us and it's not about us kind of posturing to get in the papers or whatever it's actually about bringing every single penny and pound down to Plymouth that's going to attract more jobs, that is going to bring better infrastructure, that's going to bring bigger companies and ultimately improve the life chances of every girl and boy who grows up down here. So, you know, that's the objective. But look, coronavirus has undoubtedly reset that. And I think next year is going to be a real challenge. Undoubtedly. And I think our business community are very acutely aware of that. They've had the challenge of coronavirus and surviving in lockdown and in tiered restrictions. We are in further restrictions now, and it doesn't look like it'll be lifted substantially anytime soon. And now we have the impending end of the transition period with no deal. So, you know, what is your reassurance to business? If you have to rally the business troops, what are you saying to them now? It's undoubtedly an extraordinarily difficult time in terms of what has come together at the same time. You've got this global pandemic, you've got the restrictions and the sort of constrictions they put on the economy. You then got the end of the transition deal and the transition period and leaving the European Union. What I would say is on the face of that, all I can say is that people like me are absolutely committed to the integrity and the resilience of the local business community. Without that, we literally have nothing. So whilst you will hear all the time about hospitals this and veterans that, you know, the reality is that without the local economy, we are frankly all stuffed. And that's why we work so hard to sort of bring jobs and so on down. You know, we've been on an amazing journey in Plymouth. You know, 30 years ago, we had 33,500 people in the dockyard. We now have 3,500 dockyard workers. And that slack of people whilst our population have grown that group of people if you like has been taken up by the amazing sort of small business and medium-sized enterprises community that you represent and you know i'm absolutely crystal clear that we don't get that right then we've got nothing so whilst undoubtedly we're hitting heavy water and i'm not going to deny that i think i stand ready to assist in whatever way we can to get us all through this process together. Look, we're leaving the European Union. It's a big deal. And I know that, you know, that wasn't a huge priority for our business community prior to the vote. So people aren't going to be happy. And it represents a challenge of leadership and political leadership as well. Yeah. Well, I'm heartened to hear that. Could I just touch on your military career and in some ways how it transcends into your political career? I'm that sort of strange thing of being uh, immensely proud of the armed forces and say we have the best in the world without a doubt. And I'm incredibly patriotic. And the older I get, the more I'm turning into a pacifist and wonder about (laughs) sending young people into battles that may not, may not have been fought for the reasons they say they were being fought for. And how do you reconcile that in your own mind? Do you think that we have done this? Oh, look, undoubtedly. I mean, Iraq was a historic foreign policy mistake, right? And it cost people's lives. There are mums and dads in Plymouth who don't have their kids anymore because of a foreign policy decision to go to Iraq. I think what's clear to me is the people who haven't been through that process and lost someone in these conflicts will never truly understand what it means to lose someone as a result of the decisions that are made in government. I have a lot of sympathy with your view. I don't think it was all a waste. And I know you're not saying that. I don't think it was all a waste. And some very special people from Plymouth did some very special things. But I think if it's taught us anything, 
it's taught us to be much more careful about trust, trust in politicians, trust in our national infrastructures. But look, I'm a product of this, because if these things hadn't have happened, I would not be in politics, right? You know, the way we were equipped to go to Afghanistan in the early days, you know, and Iraq at the beginning was frankly a joke. And then, you know, you see the contrast between the guys and girls who are out there who are, you know, prepared to go on another patrol, even though they don't have the body armor or whatever it may be, simply because they believe in this nation, right? And then you come back. And you mix with these political leaders. I mean, for me, it was something I couldn't do. And that's why I became a politician. So you're absolutely speaking to the converted. We have to learn faster. And, you know, there's a good game, isn't there, about talking a good game in this country, about looking after our people and veterans and all the rest of it. The gap has been so wide for so long. I'm trying to change that now. But strategic change is very slow and very difficult. Well, well done what you have done. I don't think anyone could take that away from you. It's been good to see that our veterans are finally being recognised and looked after because whether you agree or not with the reasons they went there, they went there and they stood for their country and we must always look after people who do that. I want to perhaps slightly more lighthearted. As an MP, what do you get asked that you wish you weren't and what do you wish you get asked that you never do? What do I get asked that I wish I wasn't asked? How did you vote on Brexit? <laughs> I won't ask then. And what do you wish you did get asked? No, I didn't vote for Brexit. You know, you can't rewrite history. I didn't vote for Brexit, but a lot of people in Plymouth did. Yeah. And I respect and understand the reasons why they did. I just wish it wasn't defining for my cohort of politicians. You know, it's a referendum, a very important one, and has altered the strategic course of this nation. But it's a referendum. And I think this idea that you're defined by that vote, I think, is a pretty significant mistake. I agree. Soren Kierkegaard said, to label me is to negate me. And that means to just there put a label go. on someone. You're Who was that? They sounded very important. Who said so, that? Soren Kierkegaard said, to label me is to negate me. And that's to say, oh, you're a Brexiteer. That means everything that yeah. you stand for is right or wrong. I've always agreed with that. One of my best friends has a completely polar opposite opinion to me yeah. on yeah. Brexit. Um, but yeah. we just agreed to disagree. And there's that recent joke I heard about how a rabbi and a Muslim and a Christian all go into a pub together. It's not a joke. They just got on well because they're not idiots. You know, you don't have to agree <laughs> on everything, do you? It's, I know, yeah. but it's the internet fuels this stuff. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so what do you wish you were asked? And I'll ask it. Do you know what? I do so many interviews. I think I get asked almost everything. I'm not sure I could think of a question that I haven't been asked. Oh, There's always the questions, yeah, where you suck your teeth and hope you can waffle and no one notices. But generally, I don't do that because it was only a few years ago I was in that position. I once put my foot through the TV every time I saw a politician. So I generally answer the question. And to be completely honest, it gets me in a lot of trouble. But the people of Plymouth like it, and that's all I care about. Well, that's what's important. And you've answered my question so well. Johnny Mercer, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for what you do for Plymouth. And thanks for being a supporter of the Chamber of Commerce. Pleasure. Thank you. And now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the Southwest. Hello there, and welcome back to our second part of our In Conversation with Chamber podcast. This is Chamber Made, where we talk to Chamber members about their business, how they came about, what inspired them, and so forth. And I'm really excited to be joined today by a friend of the Chamber, Howard Davies from Sulcum Gin. Hello, Howard. Hi, Stuart. Great to see you. Yeah, and you too. Thanks for joining us. Now, this is mostly an audio podcast, but I can see in the background you've got a very shiny-looking still. Are you actually in the distillery? 
If I'm brutally honest, no, I'm not. This is just using the opportunity within Zoom to put a backdrop here. But this is a genuine photo from our distillery in Sulcombe. And this is the still, which is called Provident, where we make all of our gin. Oh, wow. So just before I get into the real meat of the questions, how long has Sulcombe Gin been going for now? We started trading in about June 2016. So just over sort of four, four and a half years now. Great. Now, where did the idea for the business come from? Do you remember that moment when you decided to go for it and think, right, we're going to do it? Yeah, I mean, the original seed of the idea is from years ago. It was from holidays in Sulcombe as a child and then teaching sailing in Sulcombe at a place called the Island Cruising Club when I was a teenager. And that was where I met Angus, who's a good friend of mine, where we met there teaching sailing. And at the end of the day, teaching sailing on the water, we'd retire to the yacht club and typically first drink of the evening while we were discussing the events of the day would have been a gin and tonic. So that was kind of the seed of thought in our mind. And we then went away, did our own careers for a number of years, met up again. Angus had been out in the States for a while and seeing this sort of craft distillation movement really start to take off over there. I'd been very keen to start my own company and have a product that I was really proud of here in the Southwest. We got talking. I remember distinctly heading over to Angus's house in Kingsbridge and having a barbecue there one summer's day. And we were talking about this and he thought, you know what? The time's right. Let's just do it. And there we went. How did that feel? That moment when you thought, I'm actually going to do this? Exciting and daunting at the same time. Really exciting because for a long time, I very much wanted to have my own company and my own product that I was really proud of. And so it was very, having sort of considered a lot of things and being involved with a few things to sort of be embarking on something which I felt had fantastic potential was hugely exciting. At the same time, it's daunting. There was a lot of things we needed to get in place in terms of developing some amazing gin, getting a fantastic location for the distillery and raising some money from investors. And then beyond that, then being true to our investors and delivering on them investing their faith and finances in us. That was a responsibility that I still feel quite keenly now as well. Uh, yeah, that responsibility is weighing on you, I bet. I mean, I, funnily enough, I was having a conversation earlier today with someone and saying that when the business started growing my business and we employed you know, a dozen people or whatever, so my business partner said, he looked around the room and he said, do you ever feel like you're paying 10 or 11 mortgages? And I said, well, I didn't until you said that, but I do now. It's scary, isn't it? You have a responsibility to your investors, to your employees and what have you. So it's a relatively short journey so far. I mean, four years, you said four and a half years. But if you could go back and whisper in your ear, what would you change? If you could just go back and say, oh, Howard. Oh, that's a big question. Let me think. I'm not wanting um, you to omit any catastrophes, but there must have been something you could give yourself a bit of advice and say, I would have done that differently. Or You know, I'm really, I'm sure there's bits and bobs of decisions and things we can look back that we might do differently with the benefit of hindsight. If anything, the thing I'd probably say to myself is about enjoy the journey and recognize the bigger picture of where you are at any time. The business has done fantastically well, and I'm really proud of what we've achieved so far. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you're so close to the action and any little issue or challenge or the next thing you're trying to deliver or perform on or how you're trying to grow the business. And what I don't think I do enough is ever sort of step back enough and actually think, well, actually, look at where we're now and actually... Well, that was really good. And sort of just enjoy it for a moment and look back at all the really good stuff. It's quite easy sometimes just to focus on all the things that you're trying to do or the little challenges that you have. Yeah, I think John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're making plans. If you're always looking ahead, you forget about the journey. And life is a journey. I suppose you've got to enjoy it on the way. So speaking of that journey, what so far have been the highest highs and what have been the lowest lows on that journey? Okay, another big question. 
Best thing. I mean, the highs have probably been, I mean, the quick growth, but just some of the cool, fun stuff that we've done. I see here's a few. So one, I remember when we first opened our bar at the distillery in Silkham, and Angus and I are there sort of just sitting there and it's like, what? we own a bar now. <laughs> How strange is that? How cool is that? This whole bar fully stocked with drinks. And that was quite, that's just a really novel feeling. In my um, case, that'd be dangerous, I have yeah, to say. <laughs> <laughs> we did enjoy a couple of drinks that evening. <laughs> and then maybe another one as well. It's just some of the other fun things. For instance, we've got this great relationship with Ribeye based in Dartmouth, who mm. make fantastic powerboats. And so a few years ago, we had this idea to launch a gin delivery service where we can deliver out gin hampers to people in their yachts in Silkham Harbour. And in fact, we provide the service further afield as well since then. So Ribeye very kindly lent us a brand new boat and have done so every year since. And again, sort of taking delivery of this brand new, super fast, super powerful rib, and then sort of that suddenly is for our use for the business and a bit of pleasure as well. We do a fair bit of wakeboarding in the morning with it. That again was just such fun and the opportunities that opened up, that was another sort of amazing time for us. And we still enjoy that whenever we can now. Didn't I see you once driving a branded, was it a Porsche or something that somebody had lent you as another branded exercise? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You have such a tough life, Howard. (laughs) Yeah. So we had this concept of this gin delivery service, which we were using the powerboat for. And that was cool. And they were like, well, we really should bring this back on land as well. And, And rather than, obviously, we use, you know, traditional delivery methods as well. But we thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to have a sports car, which we deliver our gin hampers to? And we've got a good relationship with HR Owen, who at the time had an office in Dartmouth. And so we got talking to those guys, said, you know, how about we do some work together? And I said, yeah, that's fine. And so they lent us this lovely Porsche 911. So we did a bit of photos of that and I took it home for the weekend, you know, just to check it worked okay. Yeah, you got it. And yeah, so that's great as well. And then since then, actually, we had a, you know, McLaren from them as well. So uh, yeah, there's been some pretty amazing times there. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. And any lows? I mean, we've talked about the good fun stuff, and I'm sensing really that you just started this business to have toys to play with. But did you, what, any lows on that journey? No, I suppose, you know, the obvious one that springs to mind, which I want to say was obviously very nerve back in March last year when lockdown was beginning with regards to coronavirus. That was a scary time. You know, the business was doing really well. We'd been working so hard, and then suddenly it felt, ouch, you know, we could lose half this business through something that's completely beyond our control. That, again, was daunting at that point in time. But, you know, it's daunting. You sort of take the hit and then you kind of accept it, start thinking about it, step back again and got talking. But, well, actually, you know, this is a challenge, but maybe there's opportunity here as well. So let's alter slightly how we're operating the business. Let's focus some more on e-commerce. And clearly there's a strong need out there for hand sanitizer as well. So let's start producing hand sanitizer. And first of all, we were just giving hand sanitizer away just to local organisations who needed it. And so actually, in some ways, in the end, it actually was quite nice in that it made us step back and start taking a fresh perspective on what's working, what isn't working, how should we be focusing? But initially, yes, it was nerve wracking. Well, bless you for what you did. And I know that because you provided us with hand sanitizer, I've still got a bottle of your hand sanitizer in my car parked outside these very <laughs> studios. The only problem with it is when I use it and rub my hands, I suddenly I sniff and I think, I want a gin and tonic. I think, was this a deliberate <laughs> marketing ploy? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so has anyone inspired you in this journey? Who do you think, you know, you thought, ah, oh, you find them inspirational or something they've done or someone in business that really has inspired you in your journey? It's hard for me to name a specific person or entrepreneur. In general, I admire 
entrepreneurs, you know, into people who put themselves on the line and try to start something from scratch. And I think there's probably a lot of companies and people that I've sort of looked at and taken inspiration from, as well as other organizations in the drinks industry, people who've done sort of really creative things and innovative things. People I do get really inspired by and love reading about is people who do life-changing types of adventures or achievements in particular. Actually, this is quite relevant to know that one of your other interviewees, Pete Goss, you know, people who do round the world yachting, you know, I've read Pete Goss's books and I've read Ellen MacArthur, mm-hmm. Francis Chichester, you name them, I've probably read them. I love reading about that type of endurance, adventure and ambition. And I find that really, really inspiring. Yeah, me too, very much. And of course, you being a sailor. Now, I've got a slight confession, Howard, and this is confession to you and to all our listeners, is I've really tried to hate you because you've got a drinks company and your own bar and you've borrowed a McLaren. I know you have a very lovely boat because I've seen it and you've got a lovely wife. And what I really hate most of all is you're a really nice guy. It's difficult to dislike you. Could you just do something really horrible so we can dislike (laughs) Howard from Salcombe Gin? Certainly not. It's all a thin facade, Stuart. I'm is sure that really you're evil behind it all. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can tell. Do you have an end game for your Solcom Gym business? If you can share it, do you know where you're going with it? Have you got a something you want to achieve or where it's going to go? We do certainly have ambition and aspirations. And talk. I mean, I think there's one of two ways. I think you know we'd like it, it will go. Either myself and Angus are still basically we want to keep growing it and become an internationally recognized brand, Silcom Gin and some of the other products like Rum and, and New London Lights in the non-alcoholic sector that we have as well. Mm. All of these to be international brands. That's certainly our aspiration. And then for us, really, it's just we're enjoying it now, you know, despite me saying, oh, it's quite challenging and it's hard to look away from the coal face. We love what we do. Mm. We love the business. We love the people we work with. We love the industry. And if we're still loving it in five, 10 years' time, we'll still be here. It may be that in five, 10 years time, we've grown the business to a point that actually that I'm looking for another challenge. Maybe I'd quite like to sail around the world, actually, Mm -hmm. for instance, I think that'd be amazing. And my wife, Charlotte and I have often spoken about taking the kids out of school, given the opportunity. So it may be that in a few years time, actually, we decide, you know what, there's another challenge I want to do. And then at that point, then maybe we'd look to see whether we could leave the company in the safe hands of an acquirer, a large international drinks company that could take what we've begun and take it to the next level. That passion comes through. I mean, you've got a fantastic brand. And I think I said to you when I first met you, I said, Sulcum Gin is one of those things that now you think, well, hasn't it always been? Hasn't there always been a Sulcum Gin? It's kind of ubiquitous. Everywhere I go, there's Sulcum Gin. You've got a great brand, a great product. I you know, have it myself. That's not a hint, by the way, but I can give you my postal address after this. Uh, <laughs> this. So you've done really, really well with that. And I think that passion is what drives most of our chamber members, actually. They're, they have a passion for what they do. And those you can tell the ones that do, their businesses thrive because of it. Okay, well, thanks. Yeah, I love what we do and I'll, yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, good. So just to wrap up, if you had one piece of advice for our business listeners, maybe even someone who's thinking of starting a business, what would it be? For me, it's about finding the right people to work with or advise you that complement your own personal skills or shortcomings. So that's the key thing. Like Angus and I, for instance, we're really different people, but we get on really well and we've got these quite different skill sets. And I think that together as a partnership, that's been so powerful in helping us, you know, succeed and progress. And I think individually, the whole is more than the sum of the parts. That's the term I'm trying to get to. So that's been my key thing. It's understanding your strengths and your weaknesses, and then looking for who you can work with to help support those. 
Well, thank you. I completely agree, and I think that's exactly what you've got to do. You can't do everything, and you can't do everything well, and it's finding those people that, that complement what you do. I mean, fascinating talking to you. Love your company. Love what you're doing. It's a really great brand. It's really exciting. I feel kind of proud to know you. If I ever am standing in a bar, I, I must admit, if I see Salcombe Gin, I go, oh, I know them, you know, nice people. Yeah, good. So thank you. Bless you for joining us. I wish you every success and continued growth. Thank you, Howard Davies. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Lovely to speak to you. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studio full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications visit freshairstudios.com presented by Stuart Elford produced and engineered by Paul Philpot edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon production support by Lisa Hartwell copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited all rights reserved